Welcome everyone to a new episode of the Dive into Science with 15 by 4 Munich podcast. We are a science communication nonprofit organization and we'll bring you some fun, interesting interviews with scientists. My name is Enes and I'm here today with my co-host Antonis and our guest Yulia. Hello and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. We're very happy to have, have you with us. Welcome to our episode. Let's just start talking about... Uh, uh, introducing what we're going to talk about today. Can you give us a short introduction of you first? What is your academic background and uh, what is your expertise? Yes, of course. So um, hi to all of you again. And I'm Julia. I'm a psychologist. I did my bachelor's and master's in psychology. And I studied in Vienna, most beautiful city in Europe. And I, also, <laughs> and I also did an exchange semester at, at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, so very close to Amsterdam. And yeah, it was also very, very fruitful as to have a really high quality and teaching and science and a lot of very cool scientists are from Amsterdam and Leiden. And yes, definitely. <laughs> And now I am a PhD student at the LMU, so at the um, medical faculty. And I work at the Max Planck Institute of Psychiatry, which is based in Schwabing, so very much in the city center. I think it's the most central Max Planck Institute in Munich. And I'm uh, affiliated with the IMPRESS, so International Max Planck Research School for Translational Psychiatry. Um, I have to say you've been quite lucky from Vienna to Leiden and now the, the center of Munich. <laughs> uh, I hope you're also enjoying uh, doing research. I want to ask what project are you specifically working on at the moment at the uh, Max Planck Institute? So mainly I work in the BECOME study. So the BECOME study stands for Biological Classification of Mental Disorders and that's the overall goal, I think, not only of the Max Planck Institute, but also of psychiatry research in a lot of fields and institutes, probably. Uh, because the problem we're facing in psychiatry, also compared to other fields in medicine, is that we have not very um, distinguishable categories of mental disorders. So let's just take depression. Depression can be so many things. So you can have um, lack of sleep and high appetite or uh, increased need of sleep and no appetite at all. So there are so many symptoms which are uh, summarized under one umbrella term. And then we have um, like in the next steps, uh, less success in treatments. So no personalized treatments because um, they're so broad our diagnosis that we cannot really target specific things. And um, yes, so this is basically the issue. And the project I'm working in is really targeting these diagnostic criteria, which are for now based on subjective symptoms mainly. And therefore, they're so unspecific. And now the goal is to find biological markers of mental disorders. and kind of revolutionize 
the current diagnostic system of mental disorders to make it more specific to on the second level have better um, treatment approaches and better translation into clinic in general. So in, in, a, in a way you want to make mental disorders a bit more tangible because they're like invisible illnesses that people suffer from. Yes, yes. And go on, please. And one of the, the problems really in psychiatry is that treatments are not um, very well targeted. So we have around on average a success rate of 50%. And uh, this is something which should be definitely increased as the burden of mental illness is really high. Yeah, I guess the problem starts, like you mentioned before, with uh, having... Um, problems with categorizing the mental disorders, right? The, the, the borders between the different disorders must, shouldn't be very clear yet. And um, what you're doing sounds very, very important to, to resolve this. Can you tell us a bit, how do you try to do that, to do this? Uh, like on, on which uh, symptoms maybe, or readouts of the human body do you rely? Yes, uh, very important question, of course. And the goal of the BECOME study itself and also of the field is to combine as many levels of assessment as possible. So we not only focus on one domain of assessment, but on several and try to combine these to have um, like an, a holistic approach towards all these. So I focus specifically on um, brain activity measured by magnetic resonance imaging, so especially functional magnetic resonance imaging, so short fMRI. Also um, pupillometry, so we're measuring the human pupil, how it dilates or contracts or where people are um, looking at. And also on neurocognitive tests, so for example, um, alertness are measured by like um, reaction times and um, other cognitive domains are measured with neurocognitive tests. Of course, uh, self-reports are also part of this as um, we should not completely forget about the subjective feeling and burden of mental disorders. And let me think, ah, of course, um, Genetics is uh, also one big, big pillar in this whole thing. And in my project, we focus specifically on polygenic risk scores. I will not like, go into deep because that's like a whole topic for itself. Um, but um, to say it briefly, it's um, you, you, you summarize, you now you add up uh, on an individual level of the, the genetic risk you have for a specific disease for example let's just, let's just say depression maybe in the next episode we ask you <laughs> for more details <laughs> part two uh, so since we're talking about methodology here and uh, yeah you mentioned the different techniques i imagine that you also have to introduce some kind of stressor to trigger this um, this behavior or to be able to observe the brain activity so how would that work uh, in the lab or I don't know how you work, but in more simplified terms. 
Yes, um, of course, in human research, you do not have these highly controlled uh, scenarios as, for example, in animal research. So you always have confounders you cannot control for or account for. But nevertheless, there are um, experimental setups used not only in our lab, but on, in labs all over the world. So we can compare results and or, or like gather results to have a higher sample size and for example um to to give a quick summary over the the whole to say test battery in become is uh that for example in the scanner um, where we're recording brain activity participants of the study undergo several tasks and this includes a reward task, so how people react to um, gaining money in a computerized game, um, or a stress task. Um, you have to calculate um, different equations and then you get feedback, you're wrong, be faster, be better. And the task I am focusing on is a cognitive task, assessing working memory. And working memory is something we all need on our everyday basis. So it, it's something we, we remember for a short period. So very similar to, to um, um, short-term memory. And then we have the ability to manipulate and update this information constantly. And for example, that's why we can follow discussions and um, this is like a core cognitive function. A lot of other functions are building upon. And in mental disorders, cognitive abilities are often impaired. And here it's also important that the whole project doesn't focus on one specific disorder because as I said, this would be a problem because we cannot really like, we don't have a close loop of, of one specific disorder that we have so much overlap between diagnoses. Mm -hmm. So the way to go is to have transdiagnostic research. And for example, take all individuals with affective disorders and anxiety disorders as become is doing. So we have a spectrum and then we can refine categories within the spectrum. Okay, very interesting. Um, it would be also very interesting to hear what the people that get the rewarding task actually feel, right? <laughs> That would be probably the most pleasant. <laughs> but um, can you tell us a bit which from the techniques that you mentioned before, do you use all of them and try to combine or do you focus on one specific technique? And if you focus on only one, do you maybe like collaborate with other uh, labs or other people? So in our lab, we like, you cannot, like, for now, at least I am not able to combine everything because of course, the expertise is only in specific fields. But for now, I try to combine physiological measures like the pupillometry, the brain activity, and the genetics. And, um, and why do we do that? For example, the combination between brain activity in the scanner and pupillometry uh, allows us to have even more information. So um, for example, when we look at pupillometry, there is a lot of research done in animals, for example, primates. And um, 
there are the specific pathways which control the dilation of the pupil. And knowing this pathway and of course, not being able to really prove that it works the same in humans, but we assume that it's somehow similar. Um, and adding this information to the information we get from the, the human brain activity during the specific task, like for example, the working memory task, we, we are able to, to have more information. And then in the next step, we can take this, um, maybe this pupil measure in the future and like, have biological diagnostic systems, um, which could help in the clinical daily work to identify treatment targets, but that's like very far in the future. We first need to identify processes and measurements. Okay, so not not at the moment, but maybe in a few years, you think that the examination of um, of the eyes would replace uh, current diagnostic tools for mental disorders. And uh, if so, would, what kind of benefits would that give to the doctor and the patient? Mm -hmm. mm, I think it's too much said that I think it will replace. We're not that far yet. It's just one approach of having information about physiological and brain pathways which is, for example, way cheaper than the human scanner. You, it, probably it's not feasible to, to put people into the scanner on a like, mm -hmm. general clinical work because, yeah, somehow the money has to uh, like, be paid. And um, so this would be feasible to, to use like, cheaper tools where the measurement is not that... Um, uh, costly, but still get a lot of information. So the pupil would be one opportunity. And um, for now, research um, is showing that there is some correlation with, for example, symptoms of depression, um, or um, we can introduce several sub-processes of cognition through this pupillometry but that it's really a diagnostic tool, we need more research and more information. Maybe we will find that it doesn't um, qualify as this, but through the research, we've identified another tool which could be very feasible in um, practices on a daily basis, which is fast, not that costly, but still informative. Yeah, and thinking how personal the cases can be, I would actually expect that there will never reach a point we only rely on only one tool, right? Yes. Yes. But um, can I just change a bit the discussion very slightly? I just want to ask more practical things. You mentioned the scanner, right? So I, I'm trying to imagine how this works. Is there like you just put the head of the patient in a scanner and there is something that comes very close to their eyes, for example? And what happened there? What happens there? Is, is, do you measure, what do you measure exactly in the pupil? For example, if it dilates or, um, I don't know, how, how if, if, the, if the patient moves their, move their eyes very fast or what mm -hmm. exactly do you, uh, do you, 
what kind of information exactly do you get? So first, this whole scanner environment is very sensitive. So it's a shielded room and um, nothing which is not allowed to be in there can be in there. So you have to test for so many things. For example, a watch, you couldn't bring, never could bring a watch in there because, um, because of the magnetic fields. So you need to put on special clothes, needs to, you need to take off all your um, jewelry or even people with um, a lot of piercings, they have to take it off before entering the scanner. Um, or um, old tattoos sometimes have metal in the color and then they cannot enter the scanner at all because then they're like sucked into the wall or the, oh. like, I've never seen this. I don't want to see it. And of course it never happens. I'm scared. <laughs> <laughs> it never happens because of all the safety irregularities all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, but that's why the, the eye tracker is not like close to your eye. So it's like, um, so everything is shielded and through a mirror, the eye, like a eye tracker from further away is measuring your pupil. And um, what we're measuring specifically is um, how the pupil dilates or um, contract. Con contract, thank you, contract um, in, due to things they see on a, on a screen or also in resting state, so spontaneous pupil fluctuations. Mm -hmm. But additionally to that, how um, it, it dilates, we also measure the, the fixation, so where people look at um, when we, on, on the screen, when they, for example, see faces. Uh, and but also very interesting, how often do they um, like blink? Mm -hmm. Because this could also be a, a potential feature for like stress that you blink more, blink more often, or um, yeah. And also, for example, when you get more tired, you start to blink more often, and like a tiring or a fast tiring effect would have also potential to be meaningful in mental diseases. Okay. And okay, so now I just had a random thought. Um, is it true that when people look at something they like or um, anticipate something that makes them happy, uh, their pupils dilate? Yes. So Because this people... was also all over TikTok. I don't know if you saw <laughs> No, unfortunately, <laughs> but yes, so the pupil dilates because of many reasons. <laughs> That's also one of the difficulties. Okay. So um, it dilates when you're aroused, so positively aroused, but also um, negatively aroused, so high stress. And in my specific project or analysis, I can really nicely observe that the pupil dilates the more cognitive load you have so the more cognitive demand you're um, you're un you're under or you're putting into um, then it dilates and um, like parallel to that it also dilates even more when you see it a target on the screen so so um, probably independent of the task setup but when it says react to this stimuli then 
it's like a target and then it dilates even more. So these, these um, salience of, of things and arousal and cognitive demand. So these are things where the, the pupil dilates. Ah, something like a general rule, for example. Yes. Happens often, let's say. Yes, but we need to shed more light onto these sub-processes because yeah. it's so many things, but they're regulated probably a different way, but a lot of research needs to be done. <laughs> Can we, uh, I, was, I would like to ask something similar, but connected more to some disorders. If you have worked on some specific disorders, can you give us some examples just to get an idea? For example, what would you expect that happens to, to the pupils of people with depression or schizophrenia? I don't know, just, or anxiety. Just one yeah, example that you have in mind. So commonplace. So maybe you've had this experience. Mm, myself, no. But um, I can dive deep into ongoing analyses. Um, it, I, I'm talking now for myself. I mean, there's probably so much re research out there uh, showing so many things. Sure. But um, the, the sample we're using now is uh, depression and anxiety and all the other facets of these disorders. So I, now I cannot disentangle these two, but that's also the goal to like put everything into one bin and then see what happens. And um, as I mentioned before, the pupil normally dilates or increases the diameter um, like stepwise when the cognitive demand or let's say working memory load increases. So when there is low load, it's smaller. And then when we increase the load, it gets larger. And when we increase again, it increases again. So it's like a very linear relationship. And um, I, I used a, a, a modeling technique where we're able to dissect different patterns of these growth um, trajectories. So um, we see, and also in patients, this typical increase with increasing load, but we also see a different pattern. Like there is there, from the beginning, they have a, a higher um, diameter, so a larger pupil. So maybe some indication of, of a higher general arousal level or higher stress in already the task setup. And then they, the pupil does not react to uh, the increasing load. It remains the same. And only mm. in the highest load condition, there is some kind of reaction, but never um, reaching the, the, the threshold of this typical pattern, what we call. Mm. So here we have a totally different behavior of the human pupil diameter. And now what I'm working now on is to find the reasons why, like, who are these people? Like, um, is it diagnosis based? Is it um, like now the, the, the path I'm taking is, is, is it maybe childhood adversity mm -hmm. based that there is a, a higher general arousal? Yes, um, but yeah. I'm not able to answer the question now, but what, what we're seeing is different patterns in individuals with mental disorders. 
Mm. Not all of them. So it's not like mm. a split yeah. between healthy and not healthy, but it's somehow a subgroup within mental disorders. Okay. Yeah, that, that's very clear. Do you think uh, that findings from uh, your research or from the institute where you're working, they can improve therapy options in the future? I think that's people. the biggest hope. Yeah. Or the motivation. Mm. For us too, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so it's definitely the motivation. And um, I totally believe in that we, if we focus on biological markers of mental disorders, we're in the future able to introduce more targeted and more personalized treatment. Because that's something we have in other fields of medicine, let's just say cancer research. For some mm -hmm. cancers, we're already able to really um, have targeted treatment for this specific cancer in this specific organ or body part. And this is definitely the goal and hopefully the future of psychiatry. And um, through identifying biological markers on the on a baseline level, I totally think that this was this would improve treatment, but on a large scale. So also in, in the future, it's not it's not something we can pinpoint now. Like okay, in one year this will happen. No. So no. There, I mean, regarding the brain, there's so many open questions. I think we don't even know the amount of open questions we're facing. Mm -hmm. It will take for sure years, but uh, I, I keep what you said kind of as the key message for our podcast episode today, that uh, it is for sure one technique that brings us one step closer to the person, more personalized medicine, right? Yes. We are all rooting for you <laughs> to, to make, uh, yeah, I mean, to be successful in your research, of course. Um, so now to conclude, actually, I want to ask some more, uh, some less serious questions, um, some a quick fire uh, session of questions. Um, so the first question uh, is ju just uh, answer with whatever comes to your mind first. So what is the myth about your field that you would like to disprove? There are many. <laughs> oh, wow, yes. I'm like, wow, I need to think a myth about the field. Or a misconception. Mm, yeah, okay, I have it. Okay. <laughs> uh, mental disorders are like, like for, these, these are crazy people and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, it's untreatable and, and like, nobody, like, I never get it. So I think that's, that's the biggest misconception and also the stigma around it. So mental health concerns everyone. And if you do not take care of your mental health, you're, like, you're prone to have some kind of issues and also like stress. There's no one who can like, everyone can experience stress and that's something we have to deal with. And um, like, mental health, mental diseases are also biological diseases and something you need to yes. like you need to get professional help and with like work and and medicine you can get better and also be like mentally healthy again so there's not 
it's not for crazy people it's for everyone <laughs> i i totally agree and a very um, nice message actually thanks for yeah we we have so many opportunity to share uh, this so many nice takeaways from uh, today's episode um the second question is a book that you want to recommend to our listeners does it have to fit into the research field <laughs> uh well preferably yes okay okay wow mm, i need to think a little Mm -hmm. oh i i I... okay you have it (laughs) i I have two maybe and one fits very well and one more on a broader term so Mm -hmm. i I started reading it so i haven't finished but um i think it's very interesting the gendered brain Mm -hmm. it's it's not specifically about mental disorders but this um this uh differences between sexes and whether there are differences and it fits maybe like on a second look to, to mental disorders because, for example, um, statistically speaking, women uh, suffer more from depression than men, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's a very, very important thing to look at this from a whole society perspective. Is it biologically or is it because women are more prone to to talk about emotions and feelings and do not um, suck them in. So like this, uh, this, 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 yeah, it's just the first book which, which um, appeared in my head because maybe mm-hmm. because I'm right now reading it. And the second one is um, like fitting into this topic of being more aware of um, emotionality and issues. And I need to think of the title um, let me just quickly let me look it up. I'm waiting to to keep my notes. You know, I already found the the first book that you mentioned. It probably I will order it now. Yeah, I feel like I've heard about <laughs> it. And the second one. and the mm-hmm. second it's book is Invisible Women. I mean, uh, this it's also not the perfect psychiatry book, but I think everything is connected here, and. Um, this is a very statistical book about um, women being like systematically disadvantaged in the system and how also these can lead to, to mental um, disorders, even on both sides. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't want to exclude men here. I think this, this imbalance has an effect on both. So yeah, these are my two book recommendations, mm-hmm. maybe like, like reaching further to also like, to another topic of, of like a societal important topic. But yeah, these are my two things which just popped up in my head. Um, thank you. Those are really good suggestions. Um, and the last one, it's a, it's a classic question I have to ask. If you could have an hour long lunch or dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would it be? Mm, dead or alive. Okay, maybe I choose a dead person. Okay. It's Marie Curie, mm-hmm. uh, Marie Curie Skłodowska, uh, due to several reasons. Um, for s- somehow I, I, I am I feel connected to her. She's she's uh, has Polish roots. I myself I have also Polish roots, and there are not a lot of Polish scientists which are very famous. So maybe I feel this connection, and I'm also very impressed with uh, her her courage, her strength, and her work in science as a woman, and especially in, in former times. And 
being this this kind of pioneer which is like still in in all people's heads even though they're not connected to science so i really would love to talk to her and ask where she like where she has taken all the strength from i mean also her research topic is can be also looked at like very controversial um but yeah still she's a hero for me <laughs> i i definitely agree with you uh she is one of my role models as well and uh yeah, it would be really good to have the chance to have a conversation with her. <laughs> um, so sadly, we are at the end of the episode today. I really enjoyed uh, the conversation with you, uh, Julia. It was really insightful. I learned a lot. Um, it was great. Yes. And um, maybe if you want to share your uh, Twitter or Instagram, you can plug it in here. Or do you want to remain anonymous? No, I'm very happy to share my Twitter. Okay. I'm trying to uh, increase my science communication outreach. Mm -hmm. And so my Twitter handle is uh, Julia underscore uh, feats. So like the Dutch bike with a Z at the end. Um, okay. yeah. We'll be happy to keep some contact with you then. Yes, for sure. Thank you to everyone for listening. And we hope you learned something new today. Don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms at 15 by 4 Munich. Until next time.